Good evening. How we doing? Right on. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. Wow. Uh, yeah, go ahead and grab that. We're going to swap this out. We're going to be at John chapter 8. John chapter 8, if you got your Bible with you. And let me remind you where we have been and where we are going. So, the ministry of Jesus begins, and he begins doing miracles, and he begins teaching. What you see if you've been beginning to read the Gospel of John, and I want to remind you of my challenge uh, to some of you that you would sit down and read the entire Gospel of John this week. Um, But as you read through the entire Gospel of John, what you'll start to see is this, that as Jesus begins his public ministry and teaching, What begins to happen is that Jesus begins to teach things and claim things and say things, and it makes people outrageously angry. Like one of the things I never want you to forget about the Jesus story is that they crucified Jesus not because of what he did, but because of what he said. Jesus said things, and the things he said made powerful people upset It made them feel threatened. It made them feel insecure. And because of what Jesus said, they killed him. And here's why I want us to know that tonight. Because tonight I'm going to read you a story. And tonight I'm going to preach out of a story in John chapter 8. And here's my guess for a lot of you in this room. I think tonight's sermon is going to make some of you real angry. Like, I think some of you are going to leave tonight frustrated and mad and angry. And I want you to know if that's the case. That's not my intention. Like, I'm not up here to make people angry. I'm not up here to irritate or agitate you. But I am here tonight to plainly and clearly declare the truth about what Jesus had to say. And in the same way that Jesus spoke clearly and truthfully and gracefully, he was filled with the full measure of grace and truth. I just believe that sometimes we're going to preach sermons, sometimes we're going to be in spaces where we hear things and it's going to offend us, it's going to anger us, it's going to stir us up, we're not going to like it. But here's what I want for you, every eye in the room on me right now, please, whatever else you do in life, commit to being the type of person who will sit under teaching that challenges you and doesn't just tell you the things you already want to hear. For the rest of your life, be the type of person who is willing to listen to people who will challenge you, who will provoke you, who will say things you might not otherwise agree with. Because the most narrow-minded, small people in the world are people who can never hear anyone challenge them. And tonight, if tonight's sermon challenges you, you you can be mad at me, you can be mad at Hume Lake, you can rage against the system, or you can decide that perhaps sometimes... When you are being challenged and provoked, it is because there is something inside of you that God wants to deal with. And so tonight, I want to invite you to deal with that. Tonight, I want to invite you to deal with what Jesus actually does and says throughout this story. Again, we're going to be in John chapter 8, starting in verse 2, if you have your Bible with you. It says this. It says, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So this is like their, effectively, their stage, okay? Jesus sits down, which is the common thing a rabbi would do to teach the people. It says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, 
This sets up the entire story we're going to look at tonight. Jesus sits down to teach, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, like imagine with me for a moment, if the doors to the chapel flung open, and suddenly a group of men were hauling in a woman. Now, it doesn't say that she had at one point committed adultery. What does it say? She was caught in the act of adultery. So they're not bringing in a woman who's like all put together and got ready for the day. They literally caught her in the act and dragged her in. Imagine how awkward this is. Imagine how uncomfortable this is. A group of men taking a nearly naked woman, throwing her in the temple courts in front of Jesus and saying, what are you going to do with this? And right here, at the beginning of the story, I want to point out that there are at least three things happening that offend our holy God. Three things that are happening. Number one, very explicitly in the story, we are told that this woman is caught in the act of adultery. If you're not sure what the word adultery means, here's what it means. Anytime you have sex with someone who is not your spouse, that is adultery. This woman is having sex with someone who is not her spouse, and she is committing a sin. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. It is clearly, biblically, unapologetically sin. You want to know the second sin going on in this little part of the story we've already seen? The second sin is a sin God hates. It's the sin of bullying, of harassment. They, they could have addressed this woman. They could have sat her down. They could have confronted her gently and kindly for their, her sin. But no, what did they do? They grabbed her. They brought her out into public to humiliate her, to bully her, to use them as a power tool in their own game against Jesus. That is the second sin that is going on here. There is the sin of adultery, and there is the sin of bullying. And then let me give you a third sin, and maybe you haven't noticed this before in this story. The woman was caught in the act of adultery. Do you know that adultery never happens with one person? It always takes two. Where's the man? Where's he? Why isn't he being dragged before the courts? So yeah, we've got the sin of adultery, we've got the sin of bullying, but we also have the sin of sexism. Because that man should be dragged before Jesus, not just the woman. If they're going to accuse someone of adultery here, it's not just the woman who's at fault. The man's at fault as well. And so there's at least three sins going on here. There's at least three things that are offending the heart of a holy God. And here's what I want us to know. We're not going to look at any of these three, whether it be adultery or bullying or sexism, and we're not going to wink at them. We're not going to nod at them. We're not going to pretend it's kind of okay. We're not going to say it's not that big of a deal. We're not going to downplay it. We're not going to say that for some people it might be sin, but for other people it might not be sin. Here's what we're going to declare. We declared it at the very beginning, that because God created the world, he gets to define the world. Because God created re reality, he gets to define reality. And hear me on this. Because God created morality, he gets to define what's moral or not. It's like this, so I got a buddy whose name is Jacob. And at Jacob's house, Jacob's house is one of those houses, and maybe some of you will know what this is like. Actually, um, raise your hand if your house is the house where everyone's required to take their shoes off when they come into the house. Anyone? Okay, fair number of you. Not all of us, but some of us. My house is not that. My house is like shoes on, shoes off. We don't care. I got three kids, all right? Your shoes got nothing on my kids, right? But I go into Jacob's house, and when I go into Jacob's house, it's a shoes off kind of house. So every time I go through a little ritual, taking my shoes off, and then I go through his house. But I want you to imagine that I roll into Jacob's house, and one time I just don't take my shoes off. And Jake's like, hey, man, would you mind uh, taking your shoes off? And I just go, yeah, uh, no, no, no. And he's like, why not? I'm like, well, you know what? Honestly, like, for you, 
taking your shoes off may be a thing, but for me, that's just not my truth. I don't want to live that way. I want to keep my shoes on my feet. That's how I roll. It's how I've always rolled. It's how my father rolled and my father before him. He always had his shoes on. I'm always going to have my shoes on. Don't impose your thing on me, Jake. Now, here's what you know. You know how silly I sound in that moment, right? Because it's not my house I'm in. I'm in Jake's house. And when I'm in Jacob's house, i got to play by Jacob's rules. Because it's his house. He has the authority to declare what the rules are. And if you're not tracking with the metaphor, this world is God's house. He created it. He gets to decide what is right and wrong, good and bad, moral and immoral, and you do not get a vote. Your entire job is to look to the scriptures and say, God, what do you have to say? And based on what God has to say, then you respond in kind. And you know what just breaks my heart? is how many people who call themselves followers of Jesus... But then when they see the clear commands of God in the Bible, they act just like I would in Jake's house. They'll be like, no, 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 I know that's for other people. It's just not for me. God, you don't understand. My situation's a little different. I know it's what you say in the Bible, but, you know, I don't really have to roll that way. It's kind of different. We come up with excuses. So you know what sin does every single time? You know what sin is? Sin is me looking at God and saying three words. If you're taking notes tonight, write these three words down. Every time you and I sin, you know what we do? We look at the God of the universe and we say these three words, I know better. I'm smarter than you, God. I know better. I know you made a rule. I know you said this was sin. I know you said this is righteousness, but I know better. We are like a petulant child who doesn't realize that the rules their parents are putting in place is not to harm them or to squash them, but to save them. It's like this. I've got a two-year-old little boy, and almost every night that I'm home, I do bath time with my two-year-old little boy, and it is a blast. Let me tell you something. Two-year-olds in the bath, it is like Disneyland for them. They're having such a good time. My daughter's in there as well. Now, my daughter is a firstborn. Any firstborns in the house? Firstborn? Okay, here's what I know about you. You don't even have to tell me. Like, for the most part, this is true. Rule follower, right? Like, here's the rule, follow the rule, exceed the rule, do great. Second born, not so much. My son does not like to follow the rules, and I only have one rule for him in bath time, and the only rule in bath time that we have had to put in place because he simply cannot follow it is this rule. Noah, you are not allowed to drink the bath water. Oh my goodness, people, he does this. He like drinks it and then he pretends to drink it and we're like, stop drinking the bath water. And then sometimes he'll drink it and look at me out of the corner of his eye like, what you gonna do about it, right? (laughs) And like in his little two-year-old brain, he's like, this is a dumb rule. I wanna drink the bath water. And dad, sorry, with all due respect or no respect, I know better. Now, why do I not want my son to drink the bathwater? Is it because I hate him? No, it's because I love him. And I have to tell him, don't drink the bathwater. Does he understand? Of course not. Why? Because he's two, and two-year-olds know nothing. But I do this not because I hate him, but because I love him. And every time he takes a big old swig, I know it's going to mess up his stomach. I know he's the one who's going to suffer. And yet he looks at me and just goes, Dad, I know better. That's what's going on in that little brain. Listen, you and I do the same deal. Like there are just these clear commands from God in scripture and we think we can look at God and just say we know better. Like can I tell you, some of you have like totally blanked on this, forgotten about it or pretended it doesn't exist. Do you know that the scriptures in the New Testament explicitly say, let no vulgar or foul language come out of your mouth? And let some of you just walk around and you just say the things that are so vile and crass and just have no space in the mouth of a believer. 
Some of you sing along to songs that are filled with words that have no business in your mouth as a follower of Jesus. Some of you say racist and sexist things that have no business in your mouth as a believer. See, some of you say things and it comes out of your mouth and you think it's hilarious and funny and you're saying it to get a reaction and the God of the universe says, that's not funny, it's sin. And you go, well, God, you, God knows my heart. I'm just saying it as a joke. Yeah, God knows your heart and he still tells you not to swear, to not say vulgar things. And again, what do we do? Some of you are like bristling right now. You're upset, you're mad, you feel like I'm picking on you. Because here's what you've done somewhere along the way. You've gone, God, I know what you said, but I know better. Like, do you know that the Bible's just explicitly clear about sex? Like, I'm just going to go there right now because this is the issue, right? Like, this is the issue of our day. The Bible's very clear. Sex belongs in the context of marriage between one man, one woman, forever. And we, as a collective culture, have taken our fist and shaken it at God and said, we know better and gone in a completely different direction. And I want you to hear me on this. The culture has lied to you. The culture has lied to you and said sex is no big deal. It's just a physical activity. It's just like any other urge you have. Just go for it. It's no big deal. And some of you have believed the lie and told God, I know better. You know what the Bible explicitly says too? The Bible explicitly says don't get drunk on wine. Don't be mastered by anything. And yet for some of you, alcohol or drugs of some kind are just like so normal to you, such a part of the rhythm of your life that you can't even imagine that being a problem. And yet here's God saying, no, don't do this. Like, do not allow yourself to be mastered by some kind of substance. Do not allow yourself to be owned by this. And some of you just decided you know better. Because you can totally get drunk on Saturday, go to church on Sunday. It's no big deal. And you've told God, I know better. Like, do you know that the Bible explicitly says that gossip is not just a thing you shouldn't do? Sometimes it's actually a sin. And yet some of you will walk out of this chapel tonight and chat about someone else in your church, chat about someone else back home. You'll just be like doing prayer requests for them, right? Because like, that's what we do as Christians. We're like, it's a prayer. No, it's gossip. And the Bible says it's sin. And what is sin? It's three words. It's I know better. This story we're going to look at tonight begins this way. It begins with three different sins. The sin of adultery, the sin of bullying, the sin of sexism. And that sin, you just imagine, is thrown before Jesus. And I want you to see what he does with the sin. Verse 5 of the story in chapter 8 says this. It says, the law of Moses. Again, this is the people who are dragging this woman in. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? The law of Moses is referring to those first five books of the Bible. We keep referencing them. The Torah, the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible that explain the law for ancient Israel. And what happens in ancient Israel is there are these laws given, and those laws are not supposed to apply to us as Christians today, okay? So let's be abundantly clear. Like the Bible does not command if someone has sex outside of marriage, we throw rocks at them until they die. And that, that does not command that we are supposed to do that. But there were penalties for sin in the law. And those penalties for sin in the law were serious and they were grave because God was trying to illustrate something to his people. God was trying to get his people to understand something that most of us miss. And what I want you to not miss tonight, like the reason I'm here tonight communicating is because I want you to understand that your sin is not a trifle. It is not a game. It is not no big deal. If somehow you have chalked up your sin to just no big deal, it's just a little thing, everyone does it, whatever, I'm going to live my truth, do my thing, define right and wrong for myself. I want you to know something that every pastor needs to tell you. I need to tell you this because if I don't tell you what I'm about to tell you, I'd be a terrible pastor. It'd be like this, like I've got like my four-year-old girl, right? And sometimes we play in the front yard, 
but my four-year-old doesn't quite get the idea like cars come and you should not like run out into the street with cars. And like if I sat there and watched her run out into the street, I was like, I'm going to let her live her truth right now. Um, like you laugh because it's so absurd, but if I actually did it, I should go to jail, right? Because I'm a terrible dad. I'm a terrible dad if I don't warn my girl that there's actually grave consequences for this. And I would be a terrible pastor if I did not warn you that there will come a day where every single one of you dies. I know some of you just like the idea of death is so far from your mind, but one day every single one of us will die. And then you will stand before God in judgment. Like the scriptures say that every single human being will stand before the throne of God in judgment. And on that day, there will only be two destinations for you. For those who know and trust Christ, imperfect as you are, stumbling in your sin as you are, but for those of you who know Jesus and have trusted Jesus and been born again by the Spirit of God, God will look upon you even in your frailty, even in your failings, even in your stumbling, and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. But then there are others of you who will choose your sin and never choose your Savior. And because you have rejected that Savior, God will look at you and say, away from me, I never knew you, you evildoer. And you will spend eternity in a place that the Bible calls hell. I didn't make up hell. Like if hell wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't be teaching on it. But my job isn't to teach what feels good for me to teach on. My job is to teach what the Bible actually says. And Jesus is going to teach on hell. The New Testament is going to teach on hell. There's a clear indication that those who will not trust in Jesus will not spend eternity with him in heaven, but rather go to a place of eternal separation and punishment in a place the Bible calls hell. I know for some of us, we bristle at this. We just don't like it. Maybe there's even some of you in this room who believe in hell, but you'd prefer I didn't talk about it because maybe I'll scare someone or maybe I'll frustrate someone, but I have to say it. I, I was remembering years ago, I was preaching on hell at a, a college group at our church, and I was talking about that exactly what I just said. There are people who know Jesus and they'll spend eternity with him in heaven. There's people who reject Jesus, they'll spend eternity in hell. And this guy comes up to me after and he's so angry. And he was angry enough that he actually took his finger and pointed it in my chest so you knew it was like real tense in that moment. He goes, are you telling me? Are you telling me just because I don't believe in your Jesus, I'm going to hell? And in that moment, you, you know what the part of me that like wants to like make people happy wanted to do? I wanted to be like, no, 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 you misunderstood. Jesus wasn't that mean. He's a real nice guy. He would never do that. But that would be me lying. You know what I said to him? Two things. It's the two things I hope you say to someone if they ever challenge you on this point. Number one, say, are you, you telling me, are you telling me that I'm going to hell if I don't know Jesus? And I told him, I'm not telling you anything. Jesus said that. Like, this isn't a debate between me and you. Like, if you've got a problem with the idea of heaven and hell, your problem is not with me. Your problem is with the creator. Go talk to him. You can be mad at me. You can yell at me. You can do whatever you want. But this wasn't my idea. I didn't come up with this just to scare people at youth camps. I didn't come to be like, how can I scare high schoolers? All right, I'll come up with this idea called hell. Like, this is a Jesus thing. But then here's the second thing I said to the guy, and this actually was more fruitful for him. I said, you need to understand that heaven's not just like the nice place where you go bounce on a cloud, play a harp all of eternity. Like, like heaven's not just the smiley place and then the bad place is hell. I said, every vision we get of heaven in the Bible is the same. Do you know what the vision is? It's not of clouds and harps and we all have wings and angels. That's like medieval paintings, not Bible. You know what every picture of heaven in the Bible is? It's like 
at the center of heaven, there's a throne, and Jesus is on the throne, and we're all just like worshiping him, like the most epic worship set that has ever happened for all of eternity. You know when you're in worship and you feel like the time just flies by, you're just like so caught up in God's spirit, what he's doing? It's like that times a billion for eternity, where it just goes on and on forever. Like that's the picture we have every time we see heaven. And so here's what I said to this man. You don't want anything to do with Jesus, right? He goes, I want nothing to do with Jesus. I said, then why do you want to go to a heaven that's eternally about him? See, that's the question. When I talk about heaven and hell, I'm not up here saying, like, do you want a good eternity or a bad eternity? I'm asking, do you want Jesus or not? Do you want Jesus or yourself? Jesus or your sin? Because the person in here who says, God, I want nothing to do with you. I'm going my own way. I'm doing my own thing. God will eventually say, your will be done and allow you to do exactly that. See, tonight, when we look at this story, and it says, in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. This is an illustration of the seriousness of sin and the reality of hell. But can I just tell you something tonight? There is only one type of person who goes to hell. That might surprise you. You might think it's like, oh, all these bad people, all these different types of people go to hell. There is only one type of person who goes to hell, and the only type of person who does not go to heaven, the only type of person who is not saved is the person who does not think they need rescuing and does not think God will do it. Like, in other words, the person who says, I don't want to go to hell, I want to be rescued, I want God to save me from my sin, I want to trust in Jesus, that person who cries out to the Lord to save them should have no fear of hell whatsoever. Like, if you're in this room and you're a Christian, I'm not saying perfect because like that would eliminate the whole room, right? I'm just saying if you're a believer and you love Jesus and you're going, I love Jesus, but I'm kind of addicted to this. Or I love Jesus, but my past. I love Jesus, but sometimes I have seasons where I fail. I want you to know you have no fear of hell, not because your sin isn't serious, not because you don't take your sin serious, but because we take Jesus serious when he said it is finished. It's done. That's what we do in this room. So if you're a Christian, if you're born again by the spirit of God, you have no fear of hell. The only person who should fear hell is the person who doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. It goes on this way in verse 6. It says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down to the ground and wrote on it. So this is one of these really famous lines. And, and actually, sometimes this line is kind of used to like excuse your sin. Like, well, who is without sin? But that's not what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus isn't trying to let everyone else off the hook. Jesus is trying to put them squarely on the hook. Jesus is trying to say, okay, if you are sinless, you can go ahead and be the judge of the world. If you have not sinned, you can go ahead and be the judge of everything. And suddenly, what everyone realizes is, I'm actually not equipped to be the judge of anything at all. Uh, like, do you know that none of us are equipped to judge whether someone goes to heaven or hell? None of us are equipped to be the person who stands and gets to decide your eternal destiny. Only one person sits on the throne of heaven. And when you die someday, you're not going to stand in front of me. You're not going to stand in front of your parents. You're not going to stand in front of the camp director or your youth pastor. You're going to stand in front of Jesus, who has been given the authority to judge. And Jesus says, if any of you have not sinned, go ahead and throw the first stone. See, Jesus is illustrating a point that we'll be told in Romans chapter 3 as clearly as it can be that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just some of us, but all of us. Like all of us are in the same spot when it comes to our salvation. And so often what we think is like some people are good and they need a little bit of salvation, but some people are bad and they need a lot of salvation. But that's not how the Bible understands it at all. Like let me put it to you this way. Um, anyone ever watch the Olympics? 
Anyone ever dig the, okay, I, I dig the Olympics. I'm like such like a cheese ball for it. Like I hear the national anthem, I'm like crying. I'm like, dun, 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 right? Like I'm so into it. And, and the summer Olympics, okay, you, you got the long jump, okay, right? And, and, and with the long jump, it's just like run as fast as you can, jump as far as you can. And if I were to do it off the stage, I would land like right about there and like ruin my knees and my ankles. It would be the end for me. But I want to show you a picture of a guy named Mike Powell. Now, Mike Powell, yeah, 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 this guy, this guy holds the world record for the long jump. He jumped 29 feet and three quarters of an inch. That's insane. Like, I can't even get my head around that, almost 30 feet. And if it were a competition in the long jump, Mike Powell versus me, it would be like, I actually think they should show like an average guy in the Olympics just to show like how athletic these guys really are and these gals really are. But, but here's me jumping and here's Mike Powell. But then, but then here's what I want you to see. If the game wasn't jump into a sand pit at the Olympics, but if the game was instead jump across the Grand Canyon, and Mike Powell and I are like, all right, let's do this. Come on. All right. And we're like, get in. All right, ready? And the gun goes off and we run. Here's what's going to happen. We're both going to jump, Right? And I'm, I'm going to be going down faster than he is, right? Because like, he's going to go out this way, and I'm going to start my trajectory down to my sudden death. But he's also going to go and plummet to his death. Why? Because neither of us can actually make it across this canyon. And here's what the Bible says. Here's the picture we have. That the canyon that has been created between you and God because of our sin is not something you can cross on your own, not even the most righteous person. Like there is no one in this room and no one who has ever lived who can make that leap by themselves. All of us, when we do it on our own, collapse into the bottom of the canyon and we die. Only, only Jesus is able to save us. Only Jesus is the perfect one. When the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it is trying to make a point for us. And that point is this, that none of you can do it on your own. You cannot save yourself. You cannot rescue yourself. And do you know what that means really practically? What that means really practically is that everyone in this room just gets to admit together that we're sinners. When it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, it's like that includes you. And you know why that's so freeing? Let, let me tell you why this is so freeing. Um, some of you have run this whole facade your whole life where you're a really good Christian kid and you're a really, really good kid and no one thinks you sin at all and you've got a bunch of people fooled. Can I tell you, you've got no one fooled. You are a sinner. And that does not make you special or interesting because we are all sinners. And so here's why this just frees me so much when I see Romans and it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what I go? Oh, thank God I can stop pretending. Because guess what? Brian Howard is a sinner. You are a sinner. Your cabin leader is a sinner. Your youth pastor is a sinner. I'm not saying that's our whole identity. I'm just saying we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so here's what I hope that means for you really practically tonight. Not some other day, not later, not in the future, tonight. Tonight at some point you will go into a cabin discussion. Some of you, for the first time in your high school career, need to stop pretending you have it all together and admit you are a sinner to everyone else in the room. And do you know why no one will be shocked by that? Because they are also sinners. Do you know why your cabin leader will not be shocked by that? Because she or he is also a sinner. And that's what I want us to do. When we recognize all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we're able to talk about our sin openly, not because we're celebrating it, but because we know everyone gets what that's like. And people might sin differently than you, but they are sinners and you are sinners. And so tonight, 
Like during discussion time, can you not just do this thing where you're like, yeah, um, there was one day where I didn't pray as much as I'd like to. Like, no, like, like, like actually confess your sin. Confess the gross, like disgusting, not cool parts of you that you don't like to tell anyone about because it's all of us. You're not special in this. You're not unique and you're fooling no one. It goes on this way in verse nine. It says at this, when Jesus says, whoever among you has not sinned, throw the first stone. At first, at this, those who heard this began to go away one at the time, the oldest ones first. Now, now the text doesn't actually tell us why the oldest ones left first, but, but I think it's a pretty good guess to guess that the oldest ones leave first because part of spiritual maturity and part of growing up is realizing you aren't as perfect as you think you are. Can I say that again just in case you've missed that? Part of growing up spiritually is realizing that you're not as perfect as you once thought you were. Part of me growing up spiritually is realizing that I actually still have more maturing to do. It's like the closer I get to Jesus, the more I recognize all of the ways I need to become more like him. It's kind of like this, like if you turn down all of the lights in this room, it would be kind of like hard to see everyone in this room. And whatever imperfections you thought you might have, it can kind of be hidden in the dark. But the closer you get to the light, the more you can see. And the closer I get to Jesus, the more of my imperfections I see, the more selfish I seem, the more prideful I am, the more lust I discover in my heart. Like when I get closer to Jesus, I'm making war with my sin, I'm putting it down, but then I'm also realizing, does that still lives inside of me? Like I'm just seeing that. And so the oldest leave first, and they walk away from Jesus, and then it says in this verse 9, it says, until only Jesus was left. Why? Because everyone who sinned had to leave, but Jesus hasn't sinned. Only Jesus was left with the woman who was still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. And that's how the story ends. Like this remarkable story here in John chapter 8 ends with Jesus looking at this woman who has sinned. He said it in the very beginning. She has been wrong. She has been bullied. Where's the man? All good questions. This woman has still sinned. And Jesus looks at her and says two things. And these are the two things I want rattling around your brain as we talk about sin tonight. You know what the first thing Jesus says? He says, neither do I condemn you. Like, I need you to know that the whole point of Jesus is that he came into this world not to condemn the world. Like, we were already condemned. He came into the world to save it to rescue us. And Jesus dies on the cross, bleeds and suffers for my salvation so that when he looks at me, he sees no condemnation in me. That's what Romans chapter eight and verse one says. Like you wanna have a verse to memorize and lock into your brain forever? Romans chapter eight, chapter eight verse one. It says, there is now and therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus looks at the woman and says, I don't condemn you. And you know what, child of God? Person who's trusting in Jesus but still struggles with your sins? Can I give you six words that I just believe the God of the universe speaks over you? Six words that are true about you? Six words someone needs to hear tonight because you just feel so gross and so messy and you're a Christian and you've been walking with Jesus, but you still struggle with alcohol, you still struggle with porn, you still slept with your girlfriend, you still have a past, you're still ashamed. Can I tell you six words that might just free you tonight? That on the basis of Jesus' finished work on the cross, here's the six words. He is not disgusted with you. He's not like some of you have this vision of God that he sees you and he just looks at you and he just fouls up in the face and he's so mad and so upset and looks down at you and he's so judgmental and mad like he sees you and he's just disgusted with your very being. 
And I just need to tell someone tonight, the God of the universe is not disgusted with you. Just like Jesus looks at this woman and says, I do not condemn you. The God of the universe, because of the finished work of Jesus, looks and says, I already condemned my son. I do not condemn you. This is a beautiful thing that some of you need to hear. Because some of you have just been walking under the guilt of shame that has just been sitting heavy upon your shoulders. And I just think God brought you here to remove that this week. So God says, Jesus says, he says, I do not condemn you. But then what's the next thing Jesus says? He says, now go leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. Like in other words, yes, God is not disgusted with you. He loves you. He is for you. He is with you. He's on your side. He's forgiven you. You are his child, the delight of his eyes. You are chosen. You are holy. You are dearly loved. And that same Jesus looks at you and says, knock it off. Stop sinning. The thing you're doing is not leading to God's glory or your joy. Stop sinning. Stop the thing. Pull the plug on that in your life. See, Jesus, remember, what were the two words that define the life and the ministry of Jesus? It is grace and it is truth. Grace, I do not condemn you. Truth, stop sinning. Jesus is able to hold on to both. And there are some people in this room, again, who are grace people. So you're just like, yeah, oh, I do not condemn you because that's my Jesus. He doesn't judge. He doesn't condemn. He would never do anything like that. By the way, Jesus does judge. He's like the only one who's allowed to judge. You're not allowed to, but he is and he will. But the grace people just want to say like, oh, no one's really judged and everyone's not condemned. Let's never say anything wrong. And then the truth people want to just stand up here and be like, knock it off and you knock it off and you double knock it off, right? Like that's what we want to do. But here's what Jesus does. I don't condemn you. Now go stop sinning. And that's what I want you to hold on to both tonight. Like if tonight you're just feeling the crushing weight of your sin, I want you to hear Jesus Christ saying to this woman, I do not condemn you. And if tonight you're like, my sin's no big deal, I want you to hear your Lord and Savior and the master of this universe saying, knock it off. Stop it. Go and leave your life of sin. See, this is what Jesus has to say to this woman. And I think it's so perfectly encapsulated in this verse. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. I'm going to put it on the screen here. It says this, he, this is God, is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. Do you see that grace and truth being played out again? He's patient with you. Like he's not like, how dare you still be struggling at 16 years old. He's patient with you. And yet, because he doesn't want anyone to perish... He wants us to come to repentance. And repentance is simply this word that means to change your mind, to turn, to go a different direction. Visually, repentance is this. Like I go, forget you, God. I'm doing my own thing. I'm going my own direction. Repentance is this. It's the moment I stop. I put my foot in the ground. And I turn and I go back to God. The word here for repentance in the Greek language is metanoia. Metanoia is a word that means I've changed my mind. I see it differently. I think about it differently. I go, wow, I was wrong and God was right. Like that's the seven words of repentance. Again, if you're writing this down, here's seven words. Here's the seven words of repentance. And this is what I want for everyone to do in this room tonight. When you realize you're a sinner, when you realize you've been walking in sin, I've not been taking my sin seriously. I've made peace with my sin. I need to make war with my sin. Here's how you make war. It begins with these seven words. I was wrong. I was wrong, and God is right. That's repentance. That's changing your mind. It begins with you declaring, I was wrong. I am wrong in my sin. I was thinking wrong, talking wrong, acting wrong, living wrong, but God is right, and I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to change my ways. Repentance isn't just feeling bad. 
If you just are like running from God and you're like, man, I feel bad every time I come to camp and there's a message on sin, I feel terrible. But then I just go back to my sin. You haven't ever repented. To repent is actually to put your foot in the ground and go a different direction. It is to change your mind. And here's what he wants. He is patient with you. He doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to come to repentance. And so what do I want for you tonight? I want you to come to repentance. I want this to be a night of repentance for you. Like, I want some of you to get into your cabins tonight and say, you know what? Like, I've been doing my own thing, living my own way. Maybe I've even called myself a Christian. I've just been doing my own thing. And maybe you aren't a Christian, but you're just starting to realize, like, you don't even know what you believe. You just know the way you've been living is not how God would have it for you. And tonight's the night to repent. Tonight is the night to repent, and that is what I'm calling everyone in here toward. And yet, here's what I fear. I fear some of you will fall into the trap that the people of God have been falling into for all of time. And here's a sentence you will find all throughout the Bible. I'm going to show it to you in Hebrews chapter 3. But here's the sentence. You'll see this in the Old Testament and New. The sentence is, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Like, here's what I'm so burdened for. I'm burdened that some of you will hear the call to repentance tonight. And rather than falling on your knees and saying, God, I was wrong, you were right, how do I change? I need to confess it out loud, I need to change things in my life. Instead, you will harden your heart. To harden your heart is to go, I don't want to change. I don't want to give it up. And then you start getting mad at people. You get mad at me. And you go, well, I just didn't like that sermon. And then you get mad at your cabin leader because they're asking about sin. And you're mad at your youth pastor, and you're mad at your parents, and you're mad at the system, and you're mad at the man, you're mad at the church, right? You just get mad at everyone, and you've hardened your heart to say, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to do anything God's way. I'm going to continue to do things my way. And the great warning of this sentence for all the scriptures is today, if you hear the Holy Spirit of God whispering to your heart, the worst thing you can do is harden it. The worst thing you can do is say, forget you, God, I'm doing my own thing. Because that is the path to destruction, but the path to life, eternal life, and joyful life is for you to plant your foot in the ground and to repent. Now, here's what I want to do. Um, again, tonight you're going to go into cabin time, and I hope, like I pray, like I just really earnestly desire that there would be repentance going on in those cabin times. I know we got Kajabi, and that's going to be a blast, but like before you get to that, like, don't blow past this moment. Don't just brush it off. If you sense like there's just something going on in my heart, that's the Holy Spirit of God saying it's time for you to repent. But before we get there, I, I actually want to address something in the room that I think is really important for tonight's sermon and for this week's theme. Can I just say out loud, I think there's some of you who really want to repent and really want to forsake your sin, but you feel like you're stuck, you're addicted, you've tried before, and you just can't seem to break free. Can we just get honest here? There are some of you who are completely hooked on pornography. It's just a thing. And so you try to get rid of it. You try to like fight it off. You go to camp, you get fired up, and two weeks later you stumble back in, and it's the sick cycle in your life. For some of you, it's not porn, it's alcohol. Like for some of you, there's just this draw to the bottle where somehow like life has just kind of been hard and difficult. And so like alcohol and you being drunk is the only time or you being high is the only time that you actually ever feel at peace in this world. And so you've said like, I don't want to do this, but you're just like being drawn into that. Some of you even have stuff at camp, right? Like I don't want to pretend in a room this size. No one's ever brought anything in. I just want to go, okay, maybe that's a thing that's got its claws in you. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's just that rage that bubbles up inside of you. Maybe it's lying. 
Do you know that I just know high school students who just perpetually lied their whole life? It's like their only coping mechanism for the world. You just constantly deceive people. You're constantly manipulating and controlling and deceiving and lying. Again, I don't know what your thing is. But if you're in here tonight going, you know what, Brian? I would love to repent of my sin. I'd love to forsake it. But I feel like I'm in bondage to it. Like I'm tied up and I can't get out of it, no matter how hard I try. And here's what I want you to know. You are absolutely correct. No matter how hard you try, you will always be in bondage to sin if it's you versus sin. You can never break sinful, addictive patterns with willpower. And you know that. You know that because you've tried it. You know that because you leave camp going, I'll never look at porn again. I'm never going to smoke again. I'm never going to drink again. I'm going to stop lying to my parents. I'm going to stop disrespecting them. And then you fall right back into that pattern. And tonight, I don't have some like secret trick I'm going to pull out of my pastor bag to be like, this is the trick or the solution. But I am going to point to the words of my Lord, the words of my Savior, the words of my teacher, my rabbi, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, one of the most famous phrases in the book of John. There's people who know this phrase who don't even know where it comes from. They're not Christians. They don't even know where it comes from, but they've heard this phrase. And I think you could even finish the phrase without it being on screen. Jesus says, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. You know that phrase. John chapter 8, verse 32. A lot of people use that phrase. They don't even realize it's in the gospel of John. They don't even realize it came from Jesus' lips. They just think it's an axiom, a proverb, a nice thing we say from time to time. And here's what you can do if you read this verse. Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what some of you do is you go, you know what? I'm hooked on this. I'm addicted to it. So you know what I need to do? I need to fill my mind with knowledge. I need to learn more things about God. I need to read more books about how to overcome the addiction. If I fill my mind with the right knowledge, then I will know the truth, and the truth will set me free. But here's what I want you to know. This that you see on the screen, John 8, 32, is only half of the sentence Jesus actually said. And the problem with the verse numbers in the Bible, which actually weren't part of the original, it helps us know where we're going. But the problem is, we kind of turn it into like fortune cookie things that fit on a little stamp. And so we know what it says, but we don't get the context. Let me finish the verse with you tonight. See, John actually records Jesus saying not just this sentence, but a sentence before it. We're going to put John 8, 31 and 32 on the screen, and here's what it says. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do, do, do you notice what Jesus is saying? He's not saying you just fill your mind with intellectual curiosity and knowledge. You just fill your mind with the right facts and then you'll be free. He actually says something wildly different. He says if you hold to my teaching, which means if you actually do what I tell you to do, if you actually live out the Christian life, if you actually decide to do the things that Jesus told you to actually go do, if you actually walk in obedience to the scriptures, then you'll be his disciples. And then while you're already living out this gospel life that God has called you toward, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know what the road to freedom is from the thing you're addicted to and stuck on right now? It is not more intelligence. It is not more knowledge. The road to freedom runs through obedience. Obedience. That's what you are called to do. 
What you are called to do is not just learn more facts about God. You want to be free from sin. You want to be set free by the truth. You need to walk in Jesus' teaching. You need to hold to Jesus' teaching. You need to walk in obedience. What does that mean? It means real nitty-gritty practical stuff. Obedience doesn't just mean like, oh, I feel like I'll do what God wants me to do. So if God wants me to be a missionary, you're like thinking these big thoughts. No, I want you to think smaller thoughts. I want you to think specific thoughts. Like, what are the things that God is calling you to do? Like, years ago, I was here in this chapel. It was a winter camp. And it was the student um, who was in a relationship that was toxic. I don't just mean like, eh, they had some fights. I mean, it was like real bad. It was ruining his life. It was taking him off track with Jesus. It was a disaster. And he was here. And he finally came to his senses and said, you know what? Being in this relationship, for me, is sin. And I need to be out of this relationship. Oh, man, we're at winter camp with him. We're like, cool, man. We're going to get home on Monday. This is one of these holiday weekends. And then are you going to do it? He goes, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. He comes to me later that night. He goes, all right, all right, Brian, it's done. I was like, excuse me? It's done? The girlfriend wasn't at camp. I'm like, how is it done? He's like, I found the pay phones over there. I called her up. He did it at camp. I was like, what? No, 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 no. Hold up. No. <laughs> if there's a rush to the pay phones tonight... To like call everyone, no, we're out of here. Like, no, no, like that is a really unique situation. But you know what he did? Here's what I love. Shh. It's real easy to hear, oh, I'm supposed to do things. I'm supposed to like, I'm supposed to like follow Jesus and obey. It's real hard to actually make that phone call. And that's what he did. And again, I'm not saying anyone in this room has to do that tonight. I just know he listened to Jesus and did what he said, and he was set free through it. Or, or like actually literally last week, um, I was at uh, this college group again. And, and I was speaking at my church, and I was speaking on sexual sin. I was talking about some of the stuff we're talking about tonight. I was talking about, hey, listen, if you're like hiding sexual sin in your life, if you're just like in the dark, you need to drag it into the light. And I was like, maybe you need to tell someone, find some wise counsel. I even said this to the group. I said, some of you have been struggling with this for so long, you actually need to go see a professional counselor to work through some of the stuff that might be sitting underneath that sexual sin, some of the stuff that's driving you there. I just said, okay, let's get into counseling. So anyway, after the thing, I said, if anyone needs counseling, come see me, I'll give you a phone number. Young man in college comes up to me. And he asked me for the phone number. I was like, oh, okay, man. And I knew this guy well. I've been discipling for years. I was like, I'm so proud of you. So I give him the number. He punches in his phone. And I put my arm around him. I said, hey, I don't know if you're going to actually end up doing counseling. I don't know if you're going to chicken out or not or if you're really going to go through with this or, or not. But I said, would you be brave enough to make the phone call to the counselor? And he looks me dead in the face and goes, Brian, after the phone call I just made, there are no hard phone calls. I said, excuse me? He goes, you said we're supposed to drag our sin into the light. So I stepped out of the service right when it ended, and I called my mother, and I told her everything. I was like, oh my gosh, that is beautiful. And you know why that's beautiful? Because he took a huge step and a huge risk because porn was destroying his life. And if you think that's crazy, you know what I think is crazy? You struggling with the sin so bad on your own and never actually taking a drastic step to be free from it. How did he get free? His freedom is not going to come through more intelligence in his brain. It comes through obedience. I don't know what you have to do when you get home. Maybe there's a stash of something you need to destroy. Maybe there's someone you need to break it off with. Maybe there's just a group of friends that you just need to say, for now, I can't hang out with those people because every time I do, we go to parties. Every time I do, I get negative and cynical and angry and rude. Maybe there's a group of people you need to not be around anymore. I don't know what that is. I just know that obedience is your road to freedom, not just information in your head. 
And then it's not just these negative things. It's not just delete his number, destroy the stash, anything like that. It's the things that Jesus calls you to do. It's reading your Bible. Like for some of you, your path to freedom out of this thing that's got you addicted is you actually getting on your knees each morning and praying and reading your Bible. Why? Because if you hold to the teaching, then you'll be the disciples. Then you'll know the truth and it'll set you free. For some of you, it's Bible reading and prayer. For many of you, you know what it is? It's leaning in like never before with your church. Like some of you are sporadic churchgoers. It's like if you've got nothing else to do on Wednesday night or Sunday night or whenever it is, you'll go. But like, okay, fine, I have nothing else to do, I'll go. You know what you need to do? You just need to decide I'm going to walk in obedience to Jesus' call to be a part of the local church. You need to lean in with that. And if you're like, I don't even know how to do that, talk to your youth pastor. I promise they have an answer for you to get in with a small group, a Bible study, to go on a mission trip, to serve at your church. Listen to me, to give money to your church. Because if somehow you've carved up your life in such a way that Jesus owns everything except your wallet, Jesus doesn't own all of you. If you hold to Jesus' teachings, then you'll be his disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Tonight we're talking about sin, and some of you have a sin that runs so deep. You're so addicted, you're so stuck, you're so imprisoned to it. There's no easy answer. But I promise you that when Jesus says something like this, he means it, and he means it literally. That if you want to be set free, you know how I'll just summarize this phrase right here? If you're writing notes, write this down. You need to do two things. You need to listen to Jesus, and then you need to do what he says. Listen to Jesus, do what he says. Listen to Jesus, do what he says. Over and over and over and over again for the rest of your life. And when you listen to Jesus and do what he says, then you will be his disciple. Then, and only then, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. Thanks for this group. Thanks for your word. God, just pray your Holy Spirit is at work in this place. God, I pray tonight is a night of repentance here at camp. I pray people would turn from their sin not just feel things about their sin, but actually make decisions to put their foot in the ground and go a different direction. God, I pray for the hardened hearts in this room. God, I just don't believe that's forever and I don't believe that's above your power. I believe, God, that you can actually open up hardened hearts and that you can actually change those who are hardened toward you. God, for those hearts who are soft, that know they need to repent tonight, God, I pray that they would know the joy of your repentance. Restore unto them, literally before they go to bed, God, I'm asking, the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within them. God, we trust you. We love you. We confess that your ways are better. God, you are right and we are wrong. Help us to walk in that kind of repentance, that kind of faith, and help us, God, that we might be free. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said real loud. Amen. Amen.